0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast.
1: Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Please don't make me go. You can keep
0: homeschooling me. I'll
1: tell you everything I know. No more argument, okay? We've discussed this ad nauseum.
0: What's ad nauseum?
1: You don't know? Wow, looks like someone needs school. Good morning, Miss Stevenson. Who can tell me what? Three plus three.
0: Is? Everyone knows it's sick. Mary, can you stand up, please? Can you tell me what 57 multiplied by 135 is? Okay. Okay. Who 7,695. The square root is 87.7 and change. Now, what does ad nauseum mean?
1: I listen to the wind. My soul.
0: I think your niece may be gifted.
1: I am good friends with the headmaster of the Oaks Academy for Gifted Education.
0: No, I promised my
1: sister I'd give Mary a normal life. I think she's got to be here. I've sat upon the setting sun. Who's that lady in front of our door? That'll be your grandmother. Holy shit. It's a MacBook, darling.
0: What are you doing here? You are denying the girl her potential
1: How many seven-year-olds are doing advanced calculus? You
0: forgot the negative sign on the exponent
1: Mary, why don't you say anything? Thanks, says I'm not supposed to correct older people Nobody likes a smartass
0: We petition the court to grant my client full custody of the child
1: No! No! You're gonna take that girl You're gonna loan her out to some think tank Where she can talk non-trivial zeros With a bunch of old Russian guys for the rest of her life And you'd bury her under a rock Evelyn, stop! I'm raising her how I believe Diane would have wanted.
0: Do you
1: need a reason we should commit treason? If anybody takes that baby away, I'll smother you in your sleep. Bring into the My sister wanted home Mary home. to be a kid. She wanted her to have friends and to be happy. Tell us, do you have health insurance? insurance? No. Did you, you spend anybody? the night in jail? Objection. And leave the What's your greatest fear?
0: I'll ruin Mary's life. Mary,
1: Mary, Mary! Uh Uh-uh, she's bossy.
0: I've heard that. He's a
1: good person. You wanted me before I was smart. Hey, folks, it's your host, Mike White, bringing you a special episode of The Projection Booth. I recently had the pleasure of talking to producer Karen Lunder, talked to her about many of the films that she's worked on over the years, all the way from Happiness by Todd Solondz to Arrival, The Founder, Eye in the Sky, even a little bit of John Tucker Must Die. We talked a lot about the recent film Gifted from 2017, which stars Chris Evans and McKenna Grace, if it's still out by you, definitely check it out. Otherwise, look for it on DVD, home video, however you get your movies these days. I really recommend that one, and please enjoy this interview. Did you always want to be working in movies?
0: I think I figured out it out when I was in um, university. I grew up in Canada. I thought I wanted to go to art college, Realized I wasn't going to be a, a money-making painter or printmaker or anything along those lines, um, and decided to pivot and go and get a degree and always wanted to have a career that was creative and stumbled into a film class in my second semester. And, uh, that was when I really realized, oh, there's this business that combines storytelling, which I'd always loved. I'd always been big into literature and creative writing, and a visual component, and it's actually a business where you can get paid and have a career.
1: Was there any particular one film in that class where you're just like, wow, this is really one I want to pursue?
0: You know, I wish I had one of those wonderful touchstone moments that makes for for a great soundbite. Is that really important? you know, Fellini movie that turned my head, but I don't really. Um, It was more of a sort of broader realization that there was this whole um, arena that I guess I was aware of, but had never really thought about what it would be like to have a career in filmmaking. Um, And at the beginning, I didn't know if that meant purely film, television, what it meant. I just knew that storytelling in general was always a passion for me and that this seemed like an industry to explore.
1: When you were in in college, are you then helping out with other people's films? Are you making films your own, or how does that go?
0: I worked as a PA, you know, did craft service and you know, driving directors around, all kinds of just sort of random jobs over my first summer after graduating, actually. That was the first time I really got my feet wet in any way. And I was driving a director to set, and he said, what do you want to do? And I thought at the time, maybe I want to be a director. And I said, oh, I think maybe I want to be a director. And then uh, I said, what do you think I should do? And he was a very, very established filmmaker um, who was moonlighting, doing a commercial for some sort of McDonald's commercial or something. He said, well, if you want to direct, then go and go and make some stuff. Go and direct some films. And that was the moment I realized I didn't want to be a director. <laughs> I didn't have that sort of burning thing in my soul that I had to get, out, to get out in the world. But like I said, I'd always loved reading. I'd always loved creative writing. And once I sort of bopped around, um, both in commercials and on a couple of super no-budget independent films in New York, I sort of saw what everybody did, what each department head, department was about, and I realized, oh, wait, I want to be the producer. I want to be the person who's crafting the screenplay, who's figuring out how to put all the pieces together, and who's overseeing it from soup to nut, start to finish.
1: Yeah, I read that you worked on uh, Todd Solon's film. Is that right?
0: Oh, good Lord. yes. that was a million years ago. I mean, I was working at a company called October Films, where I was an intern, then script reader, then assistant. That was one of the very first films that I had the privilege to have anything to do with It was a really interesting movie because there was a lot of controversy over what kind of the film was going to make it out into the world. Bingham Ray, who was the founder and real creative head of that company, staunchly stood by Todd when everybody in the distribution world was freaking out. And that really stuck with me. He always stuck by his filmmaker, whether it was good for him or not. That really, I think, made an imprint on how I approached being a producer when I finally got the chance to do it.
1: Well, what was that first chance? When was your first producing credit?
0: I mean, the first real experience I had where I would say that my you know, that I actually performed the role of an onset producer in any true capacity was on a movie called um John Tucker Must Die with Betty Thomas. She's a very big personality and a wonderful, wonderful person. She would sometimes be really tough on me. Equally she actually listened to what I had to say and and, and even though I was sort of a young pup and frankly, a little bit afraid to share my opinion on set. We had a really beautiful way of of communicating and, you know, it was a, a fun high school movie. It wasn't like we were making this really heady political drama or something, but we really, I really learned from her in terms of how to find my voice on set and not be afraid to use it um, while at the same time hanging back long enough to see what what decisions the director would make without me piping up with my own opinion before they had a chance to say what they had to had to say.
1: It seems like once you got into that producing role, that you kind of came out great guns because I remember you did uh, John Tucker Must Die, and then right away it was uh, Mr. Woodcock. The uh, it was that Billy Bob Thornton was in that, right?
0: I love Billy Bob. We're still friends and we don't see each other on a regular basis, but I'm, I'm a huge admirer and he's a really, really generous, generous actor and, and human being. And that was a really difficult movie. You know, it was one where we had sort of reshoots and conflict of opinion, conflicting opinions about what the movie was meant to be. And in some ways, I sort of regard that as my film school, because uh, both Craig Gillespie and David Dobkin directed different parts of the film, ultimately, by the time it was all done. That can be difficult, I imagine. Yeah, it was not. It was a difficult movie. But if there's one thing I've learned, it's that every movie has challenges. And sometimes the ones that are really tough are the ones that shape you the most and make you better. So uh, it, was, it was actually a really fun experience with a lot of really talented and wonderful people. So the experience itself was really fun, but the, the challenges presented in, in, in trying to get that all the way to screen and make everybody happy, it was, it was an almost impossible task, and it was really, really hard, um, but I learned so much.
1: You know looking at your c v so mister woodcock comes out in two thousand and seven and then I don't see anything else until twenty fourteen What happened in for
0: that years. <laughs> um you know i kind of i I came up through the sort of executive development world of working for producers um, mostly on the lot, doing sort of studio development. And a, a lot of studio films don't actually get made. It was shortly after that that we kind of went into this contraction with the strike, economy crashing, some of my own personal choices in terms of where I was working and what I was doing um, also contributed to what I was and wasn't working on. But it definitely changed how these sort of, you know, because I've tended to to work on movies that are not huge tentpoles. Whether they're serious or silly, they're about people. They're walking and talking movies on some level, some of them being slightly grander in concept than that. But at at the heart of them. They're all sort of humanistic. And, you know, studio stuff making a lot of those films. Yeah, I have a, I have a large body of work that, that is sitting in stacks of dead screenplays around the studios. And then there's some of the things that I did work on quite a bit, but um, for whatever reason, didn't have a credit. So they just don't shy, show up on IMDb. It's funny, I actually just found out that Tom Flynn, the screenwriter of Gifted, he wrote 22 screenplays before he had one made.
1: I know that you were, if you're working at October films and you're working on a film like Happiness, I mean, you're there kind of working at maybe the tail end of what I would consider really that independent movement, but now you're working on things like Eye in the Sky and Arrival and, and The Founder and Gifted, which aren't, to your point, they're not big tentpole, you know, there's no superheroes in these films they have that same independent flavor to them. But what's the difference between an independent film in the mid to late 90s versus an independent film now in the 21st
0: century? I don't know that there's a huge difference, to be honest with you, outside of what makes those movies all have an opportunity to live in the world. Is that People, people want great, interesting stories that connect to them emotionally and that they have some sort of... Um, thematic resonance for them. Uh, They also, I think, especially now, and it's so exciting to see what's happening in in as much as the film business now is difficult and everybody complains about less movies are getting made, less people are going to the theaters, it's, it's harder, it's harder, it's harder. They're also craving things that are more original, and often that just means just a slightly left of center point of view, a slightly fresher perspective on something, um, some sort of emotional identifier that compels you to leave your house and go and see a film and to connect with other people in the theater as you see it. I think the independent film space, no matter what decade you're talking about, has always kind of focused on that. Maybe partially because when you're dealing with lower budgets, you, you kind of can't be blowing up a ton of things and having thousands of helicopters flying overhead. But I think also because a lot of the filmmakers and storytellers in those spaces are bringing their own personal perspective, which tends to be a little less homogenized and, and diluted than the machine that is studio franchise film. Can you tell me uh, how
1: you came to work on Arrival?
0: You know, I work at Film Nation. Um, That was, by all accounts, a a true group effort of a a lot of people. I read a screenplay along with some of my colleagues here that was an earlier draft um, of this adaptation of the short story called Story of Your Life, which came from 21 Laps, which is Sean Levy's production company and we just fell head over heels for it and uh started to lobby to be the ones to finance and and partner on producing the film i cried the first time i read it and i cried the last time i saw the final cut of the picture all
1: good tears i hope
0: absolutely yeah it's just a it it always just had this deep Moving heartbeat to it that was undeniable and frankly was one of the things that attracted me most to it and I loved the big questions it was asking about our concepts of time and communication and all of the things that I think really resonated with audience when they saw it but I also had this there was a, a warm sadness running through it with this woman who you don't quite know what it is you're learning about her life and when it all comes to a head. It's just, it's a really, really moving experience for me. That theme of, you know, I think the theme for me is if you could choose your life over again with all its mistakes and tragedies, would you choose it? And I think that's a deeply, deeply moving and provocative question. And it's a, it's an uplifting thing. I think the answer in those cases, certainly for me, is yes. And I think that's life affirming.
1: You have had the, let's say, good fortune of working with some amazing casts throughout your career, but especially looking at things like Arrival, The Founder, and Gifted. I mean, just tremendous people that are in these films.
0: I would say not to take anything away from any of them because they are all magical, um, and incredibly talented. It, it really is because of having the privilege to work with, just mentioning those films, three extraordinary filmmakers. When you have Denis Villeneuve or John Lee Hancock or Mark Webb at the helm of your script, the conversations you're having about casting are markedly different.
1: When was the first time that you ran across Gifted?
0: Probably five or six years ago, and it was a... Little script that Tom had written, and you know, it was actually not dissimilar to the film that's in the theaters. He he definitely had had crafted a, a beautiful little movie, I and mean, we did work on it a little bit, but it had this quality to it that I saw. I felt there was a bigger movie in it, but it, you could easily look at that and say this is a you know two million dollar movie that goes to Sundance on a good day. It, and for Tom, I think he probably had written it. I don't I think he spent two or three years working on it before I got my hands on it. It really was for him such an extraordinary thing because he, like I said, had written something like twenty two screenplays. Most all of them hadn't seen the light of the day. He'd long since kind of given up on writing as a day job and had moved to Florida Uh, with his wife and they sort of entered into some real estate ventures and were not really in any way affiliated with the day-to-day of Hollywood. I don't even know if he was up to date in the the writer's guild for all I know. You know, he decided to write something really personal that was, you know, a fictional story but pulled from a lot of people in his life and um, most of the things that he'd written prior to this were more straight high-concept comedies. This had a much more sort of honest, still funny and fun, but really character driven tone to it. And most of the work that we did together was just on getting anything out of it that felt more like the high concept comedy and less like this personal truth that he had created.
1: One of the things that I see, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but I tend to see really good producers as kind of being these shepherds who are finding these things and then kind of bringing them to the the rest of the world. Is that kind of how you see your job?
0: Yeah, my boss is the movie. I serve the movie. Once we have a director, I serve the director. And of course, I serve as a financier, whether we're the financiers or the studio, the distributor. You kind of have to... Manage all of those factions and do whatever you can to make everybody feel really good about what's happening. But at the end of the day, I always ask myself, is this what's best for the movie? Um, And that's really what I try to to adhere to.
1: So what were some of the challenges when it came to bringing Gifted to the screen?
0: Well, the biggest challenge was finding the right filmmaker. You know, for a time, it was... It was a script that was getting a lot of sort of speculative love from the agencies as I was flogging it around, um, particularly from talent agents, but it was sort of conditional love and no one was going to put it in front of their really important big clients without somebody very steady at the helm because this type of movie can easily fall down if it's not handled by the right kind of filmmaker. And I looked for a long time and I I I actually had given it to uh, somebody in Mark's world weeks before. <laughs> it was only which actually in our in our world is not really that long, but um it was a script that because of of how many other people had read it, talent agents etc, um it was finally somebody in Mark's world who there was a couple of people who kept telling him about it. So outside of me harassing his agent, he sort of kept hearing that the script was good. And when he read it, he called me up and said, you know, I, I do think this is special and I am going to give it to Mark. He said, but don't get your hopes up because he has another movie he wants to do next and we're about to turn that script in and, but I, I think this is worth sharing with him nonetheless because I have a feeling he might like it. That was a Thursday and on Saturday, Mark, Mark, emails me and said, I love your script. And we talked for an hour and he was in and that was that. So it actually happened very quickly once he read it, but it took me a while to get to him. And it also took me a lot longer before that to even think of getting it to him. His dance cards always pretty full. And I was talking to a lot of different filmmakers and I had a lot of interest. It's just, it was, I knew it was so important that, that whoever did, whoever came onto that had to be sort of tonally pitch perfect.
1: Once you have the director locked in, then what's the next step as far as putting this this
0: puzzle together? Well, generally, it depends you know sometimes what you want to do is have your director and your star and um, sort of be in a leveraged position to go and find the right distributor. In this case, it was sort of um, a best-of-both-world scenario in that uh, Mark had done a movie called 500 Days of Summer with a studio called Fox Searchlight, and from doing that, he owed them a picture, and he had done a couple of Spider-Man movies and um, had yet to find the thing that was going to fulfill that movie. His next film needed to be at Fox. They read the script and they loved it, and they were in. So we kind of had the perfect distributor for the movie without even having to uh, try too hard.
1: Can you tell me about the casting of McKenna Grace?
0: McKenna is, uh, she's—I fall more in love with her every day. She really is an extraordinary little girl. We had—we uh, hired a casting director, David Rubin, who's absolutely wonderful and. He had done, I think, had recently cast uh, Wild first Searchlight. Um, he's also just done Big Little Lies. He's extraordinary. With him and Fox, we set out pretty quickly on a very, very exhaustive search around the country, around the continent, around the world to find that girl because we knew if, if we didn't have the right girl, we really weren't going to have much of a movie. And she was actually in one of the very first tapes we saw in one of the very first auditions. And she even did, by coincidence, a blacklist live reading of this, of the screenplay, uh, which has nothing to do with the actual film, but the organization of the blacklist will sometimes do live readings of a particular scripts. This script had landed on the blacklist and they did a live reading of it and She was the one who did that stage reading, which I saw, and it was extraordinary. I mean, she was sitting up there on a little chair with a bunch of other actors up until 1030 at night, turning the pages at the age of seven and not missing a beat, not missing a joke, not missing a single moment of timing. For us, I think the reason we did this incredibly thorough search was we didn't know who who Frank was going to be yet. We didn't know who, who was going to play the part of Chris Evans. And of course, you need to have the right chemistry and you need to have somebody who's physically convincing and also chemically right. You know, when we sort of went through all those 900 some odd girls that had come forward, it was very clear that um, McKenna was a top contender. And when we did a chemistry read between her and Chris, it was undeniable.
1: Chris Evans, I kind of hate that guy because he's just so good looking. And I always (laughs) hear that he's actually as nice in real life as his characters are on screen.
0: Yeah, he kind of has it all, and you just want to hate him for it. He is—he's—he's a, a, he's great. He's also really funny, incredibly smart. He's also a really good tap dancer, by the way. (laughs) What
1: can't he do? Come on.
0: I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what he can't do. There's got to be something. He is so great and so passionate and so prepared. You know, he and Mark had such a great collaboration, and he takes the craft so seriously, and yet he knows how to have fun doing it. We really all just had so much bloody fun on this movie and, and everyone just kept coming up to me. Octavia would say it all the time, just, you know, this isn't normal, right? You know, just don't, don't think that every set is, is like this. Because everybody was just so invested and everyone was so happy to be there. You know, I think Chris, set, Chris is a big part of setting that tone. You know, everyone just had such a tremendously great attitude.
1: I have to admit, uh, I was crying quite a few times during the movie when I saw it last night,
0: yeah, I'm very proud of the fact that i've I've witnessed making Glenn Bavner cry <laughs> uh, yeah, you know it's funny, I've seen it so many times i can't i don't know, I've lost count um, and I still get a lump in my throat. I don't know why. I mean, obviously, Mark has made some very deliberate choices to make a movie that's heavy on the feels, as it were, Um and it really works. But I, I think it's also kind of just baked into this, to the story and the chemistry. You just care about this little girl so much, and you really care about the relationships she has with Frank and with Roberta, played by Octavia with Jenny Slate, the teacher, Bonnie, and you just, you know, you just want to see what's best for her. And I don't know, it's, I'm not gifted. I'm definitely not gifted at math. I don't have uh, too many reasons to feel the level of identification. I feel with these characters. And yet I just, every time I see the movie, I, I come out of it feeling like I want to go and hug my husband or my son or my friends or the person next to me. It's just that kind of feel good vibe.
1: Yeah, that role that Octavia Spencer plays as Roberta. Roberta,
0: would you like to have Mary tonight? Why wouldn't I like to have Mary tonight? (laughs) I told you something like this would happen. Now look where we are. I'm supposed to believe you know what you're doing. You couldn't even find a white lawyer. Wow. Look, just don't worry, okay? Don't
1: tell me that. There's nothing you can say that's going to make me feel good, because I have no say in any of this, Frank. I'm not a blood relative. I'm not a legal guardian. I'm nothing. Just the lady who lives next door, whose opinion means nothing, whose feelings mean nothing.
0: But I'd like to have Mary tonight. I'd like to have Mary every night.
1: It just tore the heart out of me.
0: Yeah, it's true. She's, you know, it, they really are, and I think that's a big theme of the film. They really are their own little family. Um, that's, the, that's sort of popped up by accident, out of circumstance. And, you know, there's that line that people often say, you can't choose your family. Well, in this case, they kind of have chosen each other in a weird way even though Frank was never planning on taking care of a little girl, he he did make a choice when he absconded with her when she was six months old. And, you know, Roberta being the neighbor, maybe didn't really plan on having such an invested relationship with these two people, but the three of them really are a unit. And you can, you can feel how deeply they care for each other, even though there's really not that much um, screen time spent on that. I think you get it right away.
1: You talked about how this project took uh, a number of years to bring fully to fruition. Out of curiosity, what's the quickest turnaround you've ever had as far as starting and finishing a project?
0: Well, and I feel obliged to say that it's always um, with a lot of collaboration, but in terms of what I've been a part of, I would have to say it was the founder because that's something that came into us as a pitch based on the life rights of the McDonald's brothers. We commissioned a screenplay, and I think we were uh, greenlit and about to start prep 18 months later. And that's extraordinary timing. Everything lined up.
1: I would ask you the converse, but I'm sure that there are pictures that you still want to see come to light that you're still working on bringing
0: oh sure I mean there, I think the average lifespan i think i think the average conversion rate in the industry is seven years, and I definitely have a few that have run that long i you know that's really the reason why, as a producer, you just have to have a ridiculous amount of passion for whatever it is because you'll go through moments where yeah, I, I remember there was a time on Gifted, it was only a couple of years in, but where it just sort of seemed like nothing was lining up. Nobody was biting. The people that were biting weren't right. It just didn't, it just started to feel like, ugh, I shouldn't be spending so much of my time, uh, or my emotional energy on this. I should focus on something that isn't quite as big a boulder to get up the mountain. And then, you know, one decision gets made, one, one piece comes in into the picture, and all of a sudden, you're, you're you're in a different place. But it is definitely a, a job of endurance, and, and it's the passion that fuels that.
1: Can you tell me a little bit about Eye in the Sky? Because that one, I'm curious when you came into that and, and what the life cycle of that project was, because it just seemed so timely when it came out.
0: It's funny, because I actually came into that very early and was not on set for that film. I read it when it was a teleplay for the BBC. It, was intended as a, you know, it was it was going to be for television and it was it was always intended. Guy Hibbert, who wrote the screenplay, had always loved this idea that, you know, there's this giant anonymous world of, of bodies making a decision about this one little girl. I think in the first screenplay, there was something like 90 speaking parts. It was a whole lot of anonymous people making a decision about this one little girl. But, you know, the work over time was figuring out how to pare that down, how to give certain characters, Characters more of, a, of an emotional stake in, in the movie to anchor it a little bit so that you could you could sort of hold on to that big globe of people that were, were deciding the fate of this child. And when we first started working on the screenplay, you know, obviously drones were in the world and in the news, but not with a level of proliferation and commonality that there is now. I remember it was probably two years into the process where... You know, a guy sent me a, an email that look look, you can buy a drone on Amazon because uh, that didn't even exist. Um, people would read the script and say, there's no such thing. As, there's no world in which there could possibly be a drone that looks like a hum- hummingbird. And we pulled up, you know, DARPA video to say, no, no, look, this thing is, is being tested. It's going to be used <laughs> in the field. And of course, now these things are, you know, relatively commonplace. There was a lot of anxiety on my part and the part of all of the other people involved in that film along the way. I would say Guy especially of, are we going to be too late? We've got to get it out there. We've got to get it out there. It was one of those, those issues, the collateral damage of drone warfare that just, it just unfortunately became a bigger and bigger issue in society. So by the time that that film was ready to, to make it to the screen, I think it was, in some ways, maybe, you know, it's always difficult. Are people going to have fatigue? Or, are, are people going to feel like, well, they see this on TV every night, so why on earth are they going to leave their house to go and see a film that has to do with something that's so issue-driven? I think because it was taking such a laser focus, and emotional look at one, just one specific scenario, and again, I think that the theme, if there is one, is that it's, using emotion to tell these stories um and i do think that that's one of the reasons we go to movies and that tends to weather a certain amount of timing um although i would say in the case of Eye in the sky um timing was certainly on our our side in the end in terms of when that movie came out it feels like it came out at the right time
1: going back to gifted it feels like so many of the actors, they could kind of wait a while while things were happening, while things were kind of falling into place. But when you're working with someone like Paquetta Grace, you kind of have to strike while the iron is hot, while she's still a little girl before she becomes a teenager. Um, Sure. uh, Is that a concern to you when you're putting things together? Like when, when things are ready to go, we have to go, go, go once we cast this little
0: girl. Yeah. And by the way, I think that's one of the reasons why we didn't, nail down the casting until we had really nailed down the rest of the cast. Um, you know, Chris was in, Octavia was in. I think we were just putting the finishing touches on getting Lindsay into the movie. And that's when we did a screen test with Chris and McKenna and a couple of other um, contenders so that we could make that decision. Pretty close to when we were about to start prep.
1: And then you do the dreaded thing of working with both children and animals.
0: And water, although not too much, um we only had like a day out with the boat. yeah that's what they always say right now those are the those are the things you want to try to avoid we were just so fortunate because McKenna is um, strangely professional and experienced for her young age. Um, She has worked quite a bit, although never carrying a a film and, and doing something that's quite as, I think, dramatically and comedically challenging as this, as this movie. But she was just so deeply talented and she and Mark really prepared and Mark worked with her a lot just in terms of getting her, prepared for some of the harder scenes in the film and that's something that she also just strangely has a deep capacity for. In fact, we saw it in the test screening. It was in the the chemistry test with Chris and McKenna. You know, she started by doing this cereal box uh, scene from the beginning of the film, which is, you know, pretty funny and just sort of swinging zingers back and forth and they immediately had a wonderful chemistry and then she very politely excused herself, went outside and about two minutes later came back in to do the Frank Don't Leave Me scene and she just came barreling in yelling screaming crying tears rushing down her face chris was just staring at the floor trying to keep it together i of course i'm a softie, so i was crying and then mark turned and looked at me and he had tears in his eyes and i just thought well we're done so i know that
1: somebody like you, you probably have a lot of pokers in the fire right now but do you know sure. what the next thing is that we'll see from you
0: there's a couple of things and I so wish I could talk about them, but they haven't been announced yet. I'm not really in a position to announce them here, but all I can say is one is, is a film that's more, um, probably in the zone of, of an eye in the sky or something like that. It's something political that's, uh, set in the women's liberation movement in, uh, 1973. And it is way less medicinal than it sounds. It's a really fantastic, um, exciting screenplay and, and something that feels extraordinarily timely today.
1: I was going to say, even though it's set in 1973, that sounds like it will really speak to today's issues.
0: Yeah, it's very, very resonant, I think.
1: How has it been being a woman and being in this position of a producer? Do you ever feel that you, that you are experiencing roadblocks that other producers that are men wouldn't necessarily experience?
0: I don't think it's something I ever thought about as I was sort of clawing my way up through the the industry to, to, to just have a career, which in and of itself is always just, you know, this is not an easy business to, to bust into. I always thought of it more in the sense of just how do you get the job done? How do you get the opportunity? Although I will say... Um, Being a little older and wiser and having a little bit more perspective that I do think there were times where maybe I didn't get the same level of credit, money, this or that as perhaps a man would. But I would say I was complicit in that because I don't know that I... I was about to say knew how to ask for it, and that's exactly it. I think the, I think where for me the the gender sort of cliche became true is that I didn't always demand it as I perceive a man might. I think that the, the gender inequalities do exist, but I also think it's, it's sort of what your personality is. I know plenty of women who make plenty of money and have no problem making damn sure that their contract reflects exactly what they want. So, um, I don't know. I think I've been quite fortunate. I've, I've worked with and for a lot of men in this business who have given me a lot of opportunity and taught me a lot and have been really good humans. So I've I've been able to um I think maybe get past some of the clichés of of what it's like to rise the ranks in in Hollywood. I will say by the way that that the gender thing does inform how I look at movies and I don't know that I always was aware of that. I think about it more than I used to. I think about whether there's a really strong female protagonist in the movie that I'm working on. I don't necessarily approach it with a deep intentionality. I don't think when I read Gifted, I said, Mary must be female, but she already was. And it just so happens that every other female character in that movie is an incredibly smart, if not gifted, educated, intelligent person. I think it might be part of what drew me to it.
1: I like that the Lindsay Duncan character, Evelyn, is not a wicked witch. Yeah. Yeah that she has moments of levity. I mean, her whole, um, God, what was it? The man who shot Liberty Mutual. Genuinely funny stuff.
0: Yeah, I mean, she, and and there is actually a couple of more scenes that never made it into the film that sort of, Cause I guess at a certain point, it felt like gilding the lily in terms of what the story required, which is it always sucks when you have something great that you have to leave on the cutting room floor. I think one of the scenes that, that got me the most in the film is, is when she is going over her daughter's notes in the end. She's seeing that little girl, her little girl in those pages and those doodles, and it just cuts to the core of what it is to be a mom or when she's turning pages with the photo album with Mary and you see, you know, the road not taken um, and how that just still sort of is bubbling under the surface for her and probably motivating a lot of the choices, good and bad that she's making um, of wanting to maybe live a little bit vicariously through the successes of other females in her family because they're able to do things that she was not able to do. Or chose not to do it, depending on how you look at it.
1: To your point from earlier, they're all very complex, very well drawn. Even though you don't spend an hour drawing each one of these characters, you get enough with that thumbnail and then you follow them through just to learn more about them. I think that it, that's the key to a great script right there.
0: Yeah, I, and that's Tom. You know, Tom really created these. These complex portraits and also it's, it's Mark in terms of how he explored those things as he, as he started to, to speak with all of these actors who he spent a lot of time with before filming.
1: Well terrific job with that. I hope that uh, more people see Gifted. I do have to tell you, I saw it at the theater last night, and it was actually, I think every seat was uh, taken. There weren't a whole lot of seats in the theater I saw it at, but every single one was taken, so that was nice, and it was getting a great reaction from everybody around me.
0: That's really good to hear. Yeah, people are finding the the movie, and I, I, I always looked at it as kind of a throwback film. You know, it's not they don't make movies like this that much anymore. I think that's one of the reasons why I knew it had to be built in just the right way that someone would actually let us make it. And I think the world could use a few movies that are just unabashedly designed to to make you feel something and leave you feeling a little bit warmer when you leave the theater.
1: Well, Karen, thank you so much for your time tonight. This has been great. Thank
0: you so much. I really uh, appreciate it. Thank you.
1: like